I find I have to actively, actively work on things. I think the first thing is, as soon as you feel those assumptions, biases, prejudices popping up, you have to be like, just recognize it and be like, nah, (laughs) you got to tear it down because then you're, if you just let it go, you're going to let it lay on top of this person. And then that's Mm -hmm. how you're going to interact with them. Or you're going to apply it to this person when you don't even know them. Hi, my name is Nadia Nagamutu, business psychologist, coach, speaker, and founder of Avenir Consulting, which creates organizational growth and success via inclusion and diversity. We've been discussing the benefits that diversity brings to companies' bottom line performance for decades with more and more evidence. But there are so many questions organizations still have about how to achieve it. How do you create a culture where people feel valued for their uniqueness and the qualities they bring? I believe it's crucial to the future success and sustainability of every organization that they find the answer to this question to make sure that each employee is not only supported, but also appreciated. With this podcast, I aim to get some of the key challenges to creating inclusive workplaces out in the open and start uncovering the solutions to embracing a culture that cares for everyone. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most inspiring people in different countries and across industries who are pushing the boundaries on inclusion and diversity in the workplace, from topics such as parenting in the workplace, ethnicity, age, gender, mental health, and all things inclusion. I want to create a movement to change society through sharing life experiences and creating more empathy and connection. Why care? I believe that once we have organizations and societies that accept and value everyone for who they are, we become healthier, happier, and better in our roles, both inside and outside work. Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of my YCare podcast. My name is Nadia Nagamutu, and I am your host. In this episode, I speak to the brilliant and compelling storyteller, Sheree Crosby-Wheeler, the Vice President of Diversity and Inclusion for Fossil Group. You're likely to know Fossil Group for its high street stores selling watches, accessories and wearables. Cherie is a diversity leader, an employment lawyer and an avid community volunteer. Together we go deep in dismantling the bias in the system, which prevents young minority people from fulfilling their potential. Cherie shares her personal story and the continuous voices that she's had in her life trying to limit her growth and her inspiring self-belief to push beyond that. We also discuss DEI challenges in the retail industry specifically, and how she's facilitating ways to overcome them. Not only is this episode packed with insights, best practice and tips for DEI leaders and practitioners, you'll soon get the sense of fun and energy that Cherie applies to all that she does. It's really infectious. Enjoy. Cherie, welcome. I'm just so excited to have you on the show. Lovely to see you again. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me to just have a good chat with you and, you know, talk some diversity and inclusion. I'm excited. Oh, me too. I've been admittedly stalking you slightly. <laughs> I love the story that you have around how you found yourself in the area of diversity, equity, inclusion. And I'd really love to hear from you personally, directly, because I've read a lot. I feel mm-hmm. like I kind of know you already. <laughs> but if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, like your upbringing, where you grew up, because that's all part of your story, right? Yeah. Where do I start? I'm a Texan and I was born in El Paso, Texas, um, but my dad was in the military. So then my first like five years, I lived in Germany and then we came back to the United States, came back to Texas. And like I said, I grew up in Texas, graduated from high school here in Texas, but I was ready to go. I was ready to leave Texas and see somewhere else. This is kind of that start of 
I wouldn't say the start of the DNI journey, but a part of it because I wanted to go somewhere where I saw, I thought that I would see professionals that looked like me. Because in the town where I grew up, there were none at all. And it was a small town. Doctors, lawyers, policemen, firefighters, accountants, anybody. Anybody with power of some kind. Okay. Yeah, we had none of that in the town where I grew up. And I thought, well, this is not a true picture of the world. I know it's not. And so I said, I want to go somewhere where I can see professionals. And if I say professionals, white collar, maybe, I don't know, because I was just thinking in an office or a doctor in a hospital or something. That's how I picked Atlanta, Georgia, because I knew that there was a large population of African-Americans in Atlanta. At such a young age, why was that important to you, do you think, to have some visible role models? Or what was it that you felt you needed that wasn't there? I think I was looking for something to aspire to, but I also, I don't know why, I just knew that, okay, it can't be the situation where I can't ascend to those things. What I see around me is not the true picture of the world. That's what I just started to tell myself. And I'm like, maybe there's people here that think that's the case, but I don't believe it. And I'm going to set out to prove that that's not the case, that there are people like me who do things like own businesses or their doctors or their lawyers or their CPAs or teachers even. I did not have an African-American teacher until, I think I didn't have one until law school. Until you got to your degree? Yes, until law school. So I don't even think I had one in undergrad. Yeah, do you know what? Oh my goodness. (laughs) That is making me think now. That concept is that what you've just said I'm now thinking of my own childhood. So it was all white teachers in primary, Mm -hmm. all white teachers in secondary, Mm -hmm. all white lecturers. Oh, my goodness. I have never, never been taught by someone from a black heritage. I have been taught by someone of an Asian Indian background. Mm -hmm. That's one person. And that was post-grad. Oh my goodness, that's blown me away. I can't actually believe that that's true. Now I'm thinking, I'm like, maybe I had, maybe it was in college, in the later years in college. That was a long time ago. So I might, but it was not in high school. It was not in elementary. It was not in the beginning of college, maybe the later years, definitely in law school. I remember the professor in law school. But one, after all those years of going to school, I mean, how many years is that? That's 12 plus four. That's 16 plus I did a year of a master's. That's 17 plus three years. That's 20 years of school. Like two? We're not in the minority, right? We have to assume that the majority of people have not been taught by someone of an ethnic background of any of some kind. And here's why it's important. Not only do you get to see someone that's like you, but we all bring perspectives, our backgrounds, our biases to what we do, to our work, to teaching as well. So I'll give you an example. I was in my high school English class, and it was like the class for your honor students. You took honors. We had this assignment. It was after reading a book. I don't remember what the book was, but in the book, there were, I think, brothers. One was a doctor and one was a lawyer. So one of our assignments was to write down famous doctors or, I guess, famous lawyers that we knew. Everybody had to write them down. And if you wrote down something that somebody else had written, then it got like marked out. Like they canceled each other out. So when it came my time 
to share the doctor that I wrote down. I was like, who can I think of? And so I thought of Dr. Charles Drew. I told my teacher, I was like, Dr. Charles Drew. Now, this is the teacher who the authority figure there in the room, everybody is listening to. She was like, I've never heard of him. I'm not aware. So all of a sudden, my credibility is called into question, like, three, who are you bringing up? Dr. Charles Drew was responsible for creating blood banks in the United States. She didn't know who he was. I knew who he was. He's an African-American man who was responsible for that. And he died in a car accident. And this has been disputed whether or not it's true. But but the story is that he didn't receive a blood transfusion because he was taken to a white hospital. So he ended up dying. But it's not disputed he was responsible for creating blood banks. And she was like, I don't know who that is. So everybody's kind of looking at me at that point like, is Sheree out here making up people? (laughs) Like, Because the authority figure in the room didn't know who he was. Yeah. And I just thought, wow, so she hasn't even learned. This is important. She doesn't even know. She's our teacher. But I knew it. And maybe a different teacher, because a lot of African-Americans know who Dr. Charles Drew is. He's a big deal. (laughs) But she did not. And I said, you know, maybe it would have been different and my credibility wouldn't have been called into question. So I kind of just kind of shrunk like, wow, that made me feel bad that she was questioning who I brought up. Like, oh, that person must not be real because I never heard of them. And so that's another reason why it's important to have different perspectives when you're teaching children. So anyways, that's why I went to Atlanta. I was like, I need to see more people like me. I barely got into that school. (laughs) I'll take that back. But it was only one of two schools that I applied to, which later on, I learned that you don't do that. You need a range of schools, some safe ones some maybe a little harder and some really hard ones. Like you need a range. I didn't have counselors that were encouraging me in that fashion. What they were encouraging me to do was play it safe and stay in the same city. They were like, don't leave. You can go to school here. I'm like, I've been here all this time. I want to leave. And they were like, no, you can just go to this little college here. And I said, no, I don't want to. And they were like, just play it safe. Kind of, which I don't think counselors should do this, but not telling you, yes, you can. You can do it. Go out there fly. I believe in you. It was like, no, (laughs) be safe, play it safe. What do you think was driving their advice to you? Was it because of the color of your skin and their belief that that's the best thing for someone like you? Or what's behind that? I think that was what it was. Okay. Like you're aiming too high. Okay. You need to stay right here. This is what we know that probably you're capable of. Never mind the fact that I was in the top 10% of my class. So out of like 230-something students, I was like number 12 or 13. So I wasn't not smart. It wasn't that I couldn't do it, but they were like, stay here and play. And I just thought, well, no, I'm not. It's time for me to go out. I was not prepared for this big city, and I wasn't prepared for, for the rigors of my undergrad. I wasn't prepared. Emory University is a very highly ranked school. I thought that I could do what I did in high school, in college, and get the same grades. No. I did the same thing and a little bit less, and I was failing. So I was placed on academic probation. But Mike snapped in like, wait a minute, you've never failed before. What are you doing? First of all, you're wasting your money because you have loans. That's what you're doing, first of all. Second of all, people are going to be so disappointed in you. Third, you're trying to escape, if you will, the expectations that you can't do these things. Also, you're trying to pull 
your family out of some of the poverty that it's in. Like, this is all on you. Right. You're pointing to your shoulders there because I can see that actually, I was about to say, what a weight to carry that actually is not just about you. This is about the system and and challenging the system. So what you were doing is that, and so this can have an impact on my family and anyone who looks like me is similar, has similar characteristics to me going forward, that they can believe it's possible. Right. And I felt like if I failed in that little town where I came from, a lot of times you would have people that they went away and people are like, yeah, you know, you're rooting them on that they left and then here they come back. Okay. And people were like, oh, look, it didn't work. And I was so afraid of being that one that left and it didn't work and coming back and people saying, see, we knew she can do it. <laughs> I didn't want that to be my story. I get it. You did it for yourself, but there was something deeper as well, which was actually proving to the system, proving to those counselors, proving to whoever thought, no, Sheree needs to just stay here and play it safe that actually, you know, this girl can. Right. What was funny was I was on academic probation after my first semester. My husband laughs at me. He was like, how could you get an F in choir? I mean, it's not like I sing at F level, but I just wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. And so I thought I let those doubts creep in. And so I even took a break and I did not go back the start of my sophomore year. I was like, oh, maybe they were right. And I was like, maybe I was aiming too high. And I applied to different schools, a couple in Texas, another one. I was like, well, maybe I just need to play it safe. In the meantime, I was just working at home. So I had a semester where I just went home and I was just working. But by this time, my mom had moved back to El Paso. Working without a degree in El Paso was extremely difficult. Like there were only certain jobs you could get. And those were some of the hardest jobs that I've still to this day ever had. A housekeeper. I worked at a convenience store overnight by myself. I was 19 years old. (laughs) And so I was like, oh, my word, like, Sheree, you're failing. All the things that people thought was going to happen, it's happening. You're failing. And I remember getting on the phone with one of my girlfriends and we're talking. I was like, man, I miss Emery. She was like, we miss you so much. I wish you'd come back. And I was like, I want to come back, but I don't know. You know, how can I now? And she was like, oh, I don't know. We just hope you will come back. And I was like, well, let me see what I can do. So I called the school and I said, well, what will it take for me to come back? And I thought it was going to be all these hoops and all this work. And they were like, well, just write a letter and say you want to come back. And I was like, that's it. (laughs) I started typing on a typewriter because this is like typewriter back then. I was like, let me type my letter so I can go back. (laughs) And I ended up going back second semester. To me, that story is about how the system that should be flying your flag and supporting you at a young age, how much of a detrimental impact that can have, those messages that get embedded into your head, even though, you know, you said, no, I can and I will, that actually those messages can't be erased. It can't be taken back. So they're still in your head. And every single day you're trying to counter them. You're trying to fight that message and play a different message. And so sometimes you don't win. Sometimes that message keeps playing and you haven't been able to rewrite it. Right. And that's why I think now I'm so sensitized to when people are providing those messages to young people. So I was at a presentation of a nonprofit here in the area where I live, and it's a nonprofit that's supposed to be helping young people. And the executive director was like, well, 
these kids, what's going to happen to them is that they're not going to graduate. I mean, she said it was like it was a fate, a complete, like, this is what's going to happen to them. They're not going to graduate. They're going to drop out. They're going to get pregnant. They're gonna, I'm thinking, if you're telling me this, I hope you're not telling these children this. There should never be a message of like, this is what's going to happen. I actually went to a program like that. And I actually remember the lady saying, this is what the statistics say because of your background oh and because goodness. of your socioeconomics, this is what they say is going to happen to you. And I'm sitting in the audience and I'm this like 15 year old girl. And I'm like, nah, nah, nah. in my head, I was like, that's not going to happen. Why are you saying this? And then she's telling you so that she's like, beat the stats. Don't be one of those people. Or was she telling you to sort of keep you in check? What was the purpose? No, it was because of this program that you're in, because of this nonprofit, we're the reason that you will not be. And it was the same thing that I was hearing recently from another nonprofit. Because of the nonprofit's intervention, then you will not be this thing or these things will happen to you. And I always thought about that. And I'm like, you're taking the agency away from people. You're taking agency away from these children because it's not the nonprofit. You're just talking. They have to live. They have to do, they have to work, they have to fight. They're the ones living their lives. It's not this nonprofit externally. Now, yeah, you might be providing information and resources, but they're doing the work, whatever that work is. So it's not because of the nonprofit that these children are thriving or surviving or becoming whatever that they become. It's because of the kids. So anyways, I'm very sensitized to that now. Very sensitized. I see that and I'm with you. I've got a not-for-profit, like a social enterprise working, it's called Inclusive Schools, and we work with primary schools to try and embed that message at the grassroots level that anything is possible. You don't have to sit in this box of what it means to be an Asian girl or what it means to be a white boy. Like, this is all socially constructed. It isn't something that you have to conform to. You can believe whatever you want and we would like to suggest that you look at the environment, look at the messages and go, why is that the case? Why do I have to follow what you tell me a girl needs to be or what you tell me a boy needs to be like or what you tell me a black person needs to look like? I just believe in empowering messages of like, it's because of you. I, organization or person, I'm just here to help in whatever way, but whatever happens, whatever comes from this, whatever you achieve, it's all because of you. It's like 1% because I said something. It's 99% because of what you did, what you believe, what you have done. That's what I want sometimes a message to get out. I haven't even gotten halfway through my story or DNI, but this is the background. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And in looking at that at an organizational lens through your work in your career to date and at Fossil, when I'm working in this space, I don't know if you find it too, where I feel like I'm taking lots of steps forward sometimes. And I'm like, oh my goodness, that was a win. Look at the change. Look at how people got that message and the difference in behavior. And people can see that, what they need to do now in this space. And it's really uplifting. And then the next moment, I'm facilitating another workshop or talking to someone else. And it's like I'm hitting a wall again. And I've taken like 10 steps back and gone, no, this is really hard work. And it feels to me that you can't work in the DEI space without being okay with that oscillating kind of ups and downs, highs and lows. So how do you manage that? Yeah, you know what? I feel like, and maybe I didn't know it at the time because I call myself a reluctant DEI practitioner because I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I was given the option. 
at a previous employer. And it's an option. You could say no, but will you really? But I thought about it and I was like, I don't want to because I knew that it was going to be hard. I knew that the work was going to be up, down, up, down. I knew that you can hit walls. I knew it just based on my legal career, just based on my background. I knew it. And I was like, I I don't want any parts of it. I also thought that I would be pigeonholed because, you know, sometimes people see black and brown professionals and just think, oh, well, you know, you're a diversity hire or the only thing you can do is work on diversity. (laughs) I'm like, no, it's not. And I didn't want anybody to think that. But I'm like, well, Cherie, also on the flip side, this has been something in the background of your life all along through school, through legal career. So this is your opportunity to step in and try to do something. That's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but I think, and not saying any one person is better than another in this work, everybody just comes to it the way that they can. But I think if you've had to like build up those grit muscles and you face some adversity, I think it better prepares you for this job. Because if you touch some of those uncomfortable nerves with people, or you hit a patch where people are upset or angry, and you've not encountered a lot of that, that might rock you back on your heels. Versus someone who's like, okay, I've been here before. This is how I'm going to handle it. Or this is what I'm going to do. So even this week, I've been frustrated about something on the phone. My husband's like, I hear your voice shaking. Because <laughs> I, I was so mad and, and frustrated about something. And it just happens. It happens. So I feel like there needs to be a lot of reaching out to other practitioners and leaning on them, knowing that, okay, this is not a singular experience of whatever thing that you're coming up against. It's not, it's happening to a bunch of people. And then it's also to the point where I'm like, you know what, I might need to go and also just sit down with a professional and let some of this out so that I'm not holding it in. Because right now it's just my husband. I'm like, I can't just give him all this negative. (laughs) He's going to be like, this lady, I don't want to talk to her when she comes from work. And I'm not saying everything is negative, but you're dealing with, I've heard somebody call it heart work before. Because you're changing not just minds, you're changing hearts sometimes. For some people who are like, "Mm, I'm neutral or "Mm, I don't believe in this. And to try to move them off of that neutrality or try to move them off of, I don't believe in this and I don't want to participate. So that's changing and that's hard. It's so hard. That's hard. As I say, like when when you're able to take people on this journey, and it is a journey for them in terms of self-awareness, and there needs to be some open-mindedness that they want to better understand themselves as well as the system. It's such an incredible feeling when you hear people go have that aha moment and go, oh my goodness, I never realized this is something that's fundamentally going to change how I lead or how I am, versus the recognition that when I don't have that moment... And some people are still, no matter how long this journey is, and sometimes I run programs of several workshops, and even from start to finish, there is nothing that has landed. They have learned through the evaluation forms, I've learned nothing. How can you have learned nothing in anything that we've been speaking about? So that's the disheartening thing for me, but that's not my job, is it? That's not our job, right? Right. And you know what's interesting? I wrote to myself this week, actually. It's something that I think I heard from someone it's also a protective mechanism for diversity practitioners. I can't care more than another person cares. I can't make you care. 
about changing behavior, about improving the environment, the work environment. I can't make you care about that. I care, but I can't make you care. You have to want to. And if you don't, I don't want to make myself just so frustrated you know, or sick to the point of trying, trying, trying. Like you said, some people, they're just not going to move. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. All right. I need to then continue to focus on who is open enough to say, you know what? I want to hear something different or new or yeah, I never thought about it that way because some people are just not going to be open that way. And it's like, all right, I can't keep banging my head up against the wall or get stuck with those folks and be like, well, I'm a total failure because no, I'm not. These people moved and these people moved a little bit on the journey. Yeah. So we've spoken a bit about that pigeonholing of people from certain characteristics. I mean, that's your whole life story, I suppose, in being pigeonholed, really. This is what the expectations are are of you, Sheree, and don't try anything more. So how do we empower? Because you mentioned around don't take agency away from people. So how do you create allyship whilst ensuring that the agency remains with the individuals? I think about it, I'm like, I'm not telling people that I'm perfect at things because I have to be an ally in many different ways as well. And so I find I have to actively, actively work on things. I I think the first thing is, as soon as you feel those assumptions, biases, prejudices popping up, you have to be like, just recognize it and be like, nah, <laughs> you got to tear it down because then you're, if you just let it go, it's you're going to let it lay on top of this person. And then that's how you're going to interact with them. Or you're going to apply it to this person when you don't even know them. That's some assumption that's built based on your experience. You have to peel that back. You have to just fight it back. You have to actively, because I have to act. Yeah, so do I. I still do. Of course, yeah. But there's people who, they don't stop to think, this is an assumption. This is a stereotype. This is a bias, a prejudice that I might have. This is not this person's experience. This individual, I don't know what their experience is because I just met them or I don't know them like that. It's work. But I think if you start to get into that practice, I think it becomes automatic that you're like, boom, get out of here. (laughs) Biases. I'm trying to engage and connect with this person on a level. And then I think that you kind of step back and let who they are come out. You don't apply to them. Oh, you think this way you did. But it's hard because that's how our minds work, that categorization. It is difficult. But I think when we just kind of pause and and have that uncomfortable. But I think once that because if you do it, you do it, you do it, you do it then it becomes habitual to stop those assumptions and stereotypes dead in their tracks. But you have to keep doing it, doing it, doing it. Yeah, absolutely. That is part of the practice in our profession, right? To keep doing it and to support other people to have that stop mechanism in place and recognize it. So I'm interested in the retail industry. So this is the industry that obviously you're in, in Fossil, What are the specific, because every industry seems to have different challenges for obvious reasons. There's sort of different demographics and diversity characteristics that get drawn to a particular industry. So what's going on in the retail industry in the DEI space? I think that, especially right now, the most important people in the retail industry, I think, if you ask me, the ones who interact with customers, if you have a physical store and some of the challenges that they face just dealing with individuals, whatever may be going on in the world, how they have to interact with people. And the challenge is how do you protect them? How do you empower them? How do you give them the tools to 
live and share those DEI values that a company espouses. I think a lot of retailers are working on that. So shop floor level. So people who are interacting directly, because you've got corporate, haven't you, sort of like who sits in head office or whatever, doing the doing behind the scenes. And then you've got those people who are frontline meeting those customers. Right. I think that is something that's really important in the DEI space right now with respect to like retailers that have storefronts and people who are out. I know recently Sephora came out with a racial bias study that they did. If anybody wants to read it, I haven't read all the way through it, but I know they did an in-depth study about, and it was about that. It's how workers interact with customers, how workers are treated based on their characteristics. It's two-way. It's sort of how to upskill the individual to be able to manage any bias or discrimination that comes their way from, because you don't know who's walking into the store and what biases they hold. Exactly. So I think that's one of the bigger things in retail right now. So what are you doing at Fossil then around this? I would say we're new in the journey working on it. I know my part is to continually try to engage. It's hard because, you know, retail is all spread out. They're out. They're not here with me in corporate. That's a challenge even beyond retail. Any industry that has manufacturing or people who are spread out, like their workforce is very spread out, It's hard to connect up the DEI efforts with those individuals who are out because they're out there working. Like they're not sitting in front of a computer like me, but that doesn't mean that we don't still try to include them in the best ways that we can, given whatever the work situation is. Sometimes that involves micro learnings. I've heard of companies doing that before where it's like, okay, right before your shift begins, if if you have a little quick sharing a micro learning. Or I know we have, it's almost like gamification, if you will, on your smartphone, an app that you can go on and learn DEI topics. And so maybe if you have a little break in your work time, you're like, oh, I'm going to look, or not even a break, creating that space and time during the workday so that maybe the customer flow has died down, you can go on and learn something in a smaller, like a captured moment in time. So does that need to be compulsory then? I don't think you need, because a lot of people do want to learn. They want to be involved. So I don't know that it needs to be like, you have to go and do this. It's like, if they have time, that's the thing. If you're busy with a customer or whatever the case may be, then maybe you don't have time to do it then. But maybe then there comes a lull and then you decide to say, oh, okay, I can learn this thing or learn about this particular community of people in this way that's on my smartphone. Yes, I love that. I don't think it occurred to me before. There is almost like a disconnect between those people who are at shop floor level in terms of what was going on at corporate who have accessibility to the e-learning platform every day or who can take part in a virtual workshop or whatever. But these people are out there, their customers facing, when do they get their moment to be able to? Yeah. So how do you create that thread down of this is the fossil way? This is what fossil stand for. Is that again through those team huddle type things or? Yeah, I think it has to be the communication has to come through their management. Myself, I can't get to all the people, the executives, they can't get to all the people, but you can try have messages that you cascade down through their and hope that it gets there. And obviously we're not in person. I'm not like going to different places, but to the extent that I can, I will. So for instance, I was just on a personal trip where my husband's hometown is Detroit. And I was like, I know we have stores here. I want to go, you know, and I put my mask on 
And I showed up and I, I talked to the employees. So it was to the extent that I can connect, I will in person, but that's hard because you, know, you have hundreds of stores. I'd love to see Cherie like rock up at every fossil <laughs> store around the world and go, I'm I know. here. I wish. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm here. And I'd pop up and I'd pop up. So it's hard. But to the extent that you can have that personal interaction, you do. But to the extent that you can't, then their management have to make sure that there's some cascade mechanism. So you, you say you're at the beginning of the journey. So what's the most sort of innovative or something that you're really proud of that you have implemented at Fossil then in the DEI space? I think that it's just trying to open up communication pathways. That to me is so important. So we have like an internal intranet And, you know, I put DEI topics and articles and things out there, and that's burgeoning. It starts off slow, but I know it can build because I've seen it before. And then obviously a lot of companies create spaces for employees to come and learn or to share. We've done that this year, created those spaces, and we call them fossil group gatherings. And so they're virtual for now. That's fine. It's still a space for employees. Anyone can drop into that? Or is it specific diversity characteristics where you sort of bring? Oh, no, anybody. Just a drop-in session, come and talk. Yeah, anybody can come in for the ones that we've had. And like I said, they're, they're learning opportunities or sharing opportunities. So it just depends on what it is. And I think you should create those spaces because then I think what ends up happening is the more and more you build that up and you build that muscle, people start to feel psychologically safe to share things, to talk to their manager, like, oh, we talked about this, or or to come to me, whatever the case may be, just having that psychological safety. And I'm, I'm not saying I can fix everything, but sometimes, and we know it, just being able to talk through something is helpful. Yeah, and be listened to. Exactly. Sometimes just being able to get it out is helpful. So I'm proud of that, creating those spaces. I'm also implementing what I call office hours. So some people don't want to talk in a broad group setting. You know, they're like, no, I'm just going to be quiet. There's a bunch of people on this (laughs) call. Or, you know, they don't necessarily want to talk in their team meeting, but maybe they want to talk one-on-one. And so I'm like, you know what? And I know you can reach out to me anytime, but what I'm saying on the office hours is here's the time that I've set aside. I'm not going to put anything else on this time for people who want to come talk D&I, whatever it may be. Again, that's just another line of communication. Another, And I think like colleges and professors have that too. But I'm like, well, you can have it in the corporate space. And to me, it's a little different than saying I have an open door policy. Because even when people have an open door policy, you never know, like, are they busy right now? But if it's like I set this time aside for this particular activity, which is somebody to come and talk to me about DEI topics, whatever they may be, then that's different to me. And so we're going to be implementing that soon. Talking about some of the journey that you've already been on. And so I know that Fossil Group was named one of the best places to work for the LGBTQ plus community based on the Corporate Equality Index. That was last year. So are you able to explain how that came to be? So what work took place from a cultural perspective to mean that people from LGBTQ plus community feel like Fossil is a place where they can work and feel accepted to work. So I will say, I wasn't here then, (laughs) but yes, and that wasn't even the only time. Fossil has received that award several years in a row. 
And so I think that's just a testament to the work that has been put in as far as policies and practices. And obviously, everybody can still continue to work and there's still work to be done. But that's just a testament to what was already done before I even got here, that it was recognized by them. So I think it's just trying to create that culture. And again, I always say that because sometimes when we're talking as practitioners, some of the things that we say, it might feel like we've arrived, look what we did. And I'm like, no, I know that there's always still more work that we can do. And that's not to say that it's not great that we've achieved those things. I'm just like, that's good. And I know we can even do more and better. And so that's the way I kind of try to look at it. But I know that there have been practices in place like I said, before I got here, for them to have received it multiple years in a row. Is there like an LGBTQ plus community or like an ERG or what do you have? Not yet. Not yet, because we're getting ready to start ERGs. And the way that we're going to start them is based on, again, I'm big on listening to employees. And so we're going to see which ERGs do employees want to start with? Which ones do they want? Instead of me coming and be like, we're going to start with these. No, (laughs) no. Which ones do y'all want to start with? And then we'll take it from there. So we're in the process of determining which ones we'll start with. That's really exciting. I must say that your role sounds so interesting. (laughs) It is. (laughs) It sounds like he challenges you every day, but also you have scope to apply some of the best practice that we know is out there. We know ERGs are successful there's a power of of networks that can really move and help create that dialogue you were saying that conduit for voices to be heard we know that ERGs are a good form of that I love that your role can allow you to just go this is something that we can implement here I'm excited about what we're going to be doing in the years to come I'm here at Fossil because just being able to move further along in the journey and there's companies out there they've been at it maybe longer than us but I'm super competitive. I always like to do the very best. So I'm like, yeah, that's all right. We're coming on in here. Now we're going to be like, my goodness, (laughs) look at Fossil. That's right. (laughs) We'll be like super pumped up. To me, that seems to be a pattern and a story in your life. From right at the beginning of our conversation, the story you told of, do you know what? No, I don't need to let this box that people have put around me define who I am because I can do more. I can be more and I'm going to keep shifting and moving. And it seems that in everything that you apply now in Fossil, you're like, no, who says let's do more? Let's do it. We can do it. Right. Let's be unique like our culture. Let's be creative. Let's lean into our values and just do DEI, you know, our way. I love it. And um, I'm excited to see where we go and what we do. Yeah. So we've spoken a lot about, I suppose, the ownership of where DEI lands, whether it's with the individuals from minority groups, whether it's with those people who are in power. For me, and certainly from what I've been hearing from you, it lies on both sides or with everyone, right? So how does an organization then, from your perspective, how do you create that collective action, that collective ownership? So every member of staff shop floor and senior right at the top of the organization, that cascade, how do you create the collective movement that we need, do you think? I look at it almost like a snowball. Like it might start like a bunch of different little snowballs. (laughs) And there you have your strategy, your overall strategy, but that strategy is coming at it from all these different ways, all the different populations in the organization that you have to think about. And as you're working on the different 
Like it's this group, this department, and you're doing it the best you can simultaneously so that as it gets rolling over here and it gets rolling over here and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger till after a while, you're going to have this big old snowball that's just rolling. I think sometimes people don't see that, yes, it's picking up steam in all these little places. They don't know. They're like, nothing's happening. I'm like, it is. It is. You just can't see it because you're not looking at it in the bigger. You're looking at it maybe from where you sit. I'm trying to pull back and be like, okay, we're working over here. We're working over here. We're going to connect this with that and get that snowball going. And to me, I will feel like we've really made some great strides when, and it's happening a little bit now, but I want to see it a lot when even in the teams, the leaders are like, well, this is what we're going to do. They're taking it and they're like, this is what we're going to do on DEI. And here's what I think we can do and coming up with ideas on their own to me. That's when you're like, yeah, and we have some of that now. I want more of it and more and more. Oh, it's so exciting. Amazing what you've achieved in actually a relatively short space of time of being at Fossil Group. And I can see and I can hear big ideas and a lot of energy and passion from you. So I guess it's watch this space at Fossil Group then. Yes, indeed. Watch it. (laughs) Watch this space. I have absolutely loved talking to you, Cherie. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you have from a personal perspective of your life and how that's translated and driven you to everything that you do in your life. I know that we haven't even had a chance to speak of all the other stuff that you do outside of Fossil Group. So that's the next episode with Cherie Crosby-Wheeler. So for people who want to get hold of you or interested in anything we've spoken about, the work that you're doing, are you active on social media? Where can they get hold of you? Basically, in my favorite platform, LinkedIn. There's some people who don't answer their LinkedIn or they're not on there. I'm on there. I go on there every day. So if somebody wants to talk to me, just reach out to me on LinkedIn and I will respond. <laughs> Unless you're like, buy these gold coins. I'm like, no, probably not. But if it's DEI, <laughs> if it's DEI then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. Well, the link to everything Cherie and I spoke about today is going to be available on the show notes page, usual place, the avenirconsultingservices.com website under podcasts. Cherie, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything and your time and sharing your insights, your life story, everything. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Nadia, for having me. I enjoyed myself immensely. That concludes episode 15 of the YCAP podcast. Cherie's philosophy in life is to always think that it's possible to do more, to go beyond expectations. As a DEI practitioner and leader in an organization, it's the perfect and only mindset for success. It really is a case of watch this space. More from Cherie and DEI at Fossil Group, no doubt to come soon. Do let Cherie and I know what you thought of today's episode. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Nadia Nagamutu and at Avenir Consulting Services. As always, I really appreciate your support of this podcast through leaving a review on whatever platform you're listening and spreading the word by sharing it with your friends and family. Huge thanks, as always, to Mauro Kenji for editing this podcast and John Rice for supporting with the show notes and getting it out there on social media.